Good morning, new community. My, it's good to see your faces this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Um, in case you don't know me, my name is Ruth Ndkai, and I'm um, here. I'm on staff here at New Community. Um, I'm, I'm usually a small group coordinator, which means I'm usually sitting together with you all. <laughs> so I'm not, aka, not preaching. But the Lord has placed a word on my heart for you today, and it comes from the book of Esther. My guess is many of you are familiar with this story because you grew up going to church, so this story sits in your memory as like a lot of old, other Old Testament stories do. But that being said, I'm aware that some of you didn't grow up going to church, and you're probably wondering, who is Esther? What's her story? Well, the story of Esther is found in the book of Esther, and the book of Esther is found in the Bible. It's a 10-chapter book, which I won't read in its entirety to you today. But in order to simply introduce a storyline to you, I thought I'd pose and answer the following question. If, you were, if I was to give the story of Esther a modern book title, what would it be? Here are some titles I found interesting. Here's the first one. The Five Rules of Business Success, according to Esther. So just to be clear, Esther was not a businesswoman, but through the course of her life and in the most pivotal time in the story, when her relatives were on the verge of being annihilated, Esther acted with strong business acumen. She was keen in a very, very complex situation and was able to spin the situation for the good of herself and for her relatives. Okay, here's another one. The Jewish nation will survive. So the book of Esther is arguably really about the Jewish people. And just, yeah, Esther is just a part of that story. The significance of the books rides on the fact that the Jewish people were rescued from being mass murdered. Yes, that's part of the story. See, the Jewish people at the time were living in exile and looked down upon for being different. Kind of sounds like racism to me. But the story ends in their favor instead of their destruction. I think the book of Esther could be preached um, and talked about in a variety of ways and still hold in integrity for the original intention of the book. But today, I want to preach on the book of Esther by offering the following book title, Hadassah and Her Unintended Journey. So you might be wondering, who's Hadassah? Well, Hadassah is Esther's original name. It's a name she was given at birth. Esther was the name Hadessa was given by the Persian Empire because a big part of her story involved living away from her cultural, ethnic community. Hadessa was her Jewish name. Esther was her Persian name. Yuhan is my Chinese name. Ruth is my American name. Yuhan is the name my parents would call me at home. Ruth is my American name. It's funny, no one else calls me Yuhan, except for my parents and relatives, but there's something about that name that brings my body of an awareness and memory of who I used to be and who I am today. Because when I hear Yuhan, I suddenly remember that I am my mother's daughter. <laughs> Yuhan is the name that resurrects all the memories from good old Beaver Creek, Ohio the days when it felt like I was living an un unending identity crisis. Am I more Chinese or more American? 
Irhan is the name that reminds me that despite living outside of my parents' home for almost more than almost half my life now, I have been deeply formed in a place that I no longer call home. And so today I want to refer to Esther as Hadessa because I think it calls forth a part of her identity that I want to focus on as we explore this text. Okay, so I told you about Hadessa. You're probably wondering on an unintended journey. What does that mean? Well, I got this phrase from a book I've been reading about betrayal. It describes the journey of one traveling, a journey that one travels because of other people's choices or because of circumstances outside of your control. So it's a journey that one takes, not a personal choice, but out of the choices other people make that impact your life. I'm wondering how many of you can relate to being on an unintended journey. Of being on a journey that is never, is not a result of, is out of your choice, but other people's choices. Of being on a journey that you never asked to be on. Of being on a journey outside of your control. Maybe it feels like a, deal, like a, a hand that you are dealt that feels unfair. Maybe having to carry certain family burdens that feel particularly heavy. Or perhaps it's a metal condition that you or a loved one has. Maybe it's a traumatic experience from your childhood or adulthood. Maybe it's a job situation that's been outside of your control for months or maybe worse, years. Maybe it's the family you grew up in, the family you never asked to grow up in, that your childhood, the childhood you're still getting over. Maybe it's your romantic status, Hadessa and her unintended journey. Before I tell you more about Hadessa, I really need you to get a good picture of where Hadessa's unintended journey began, the backdrop of the story, if you will. So Hadessa's journey takes place in the city of Susa. It kind of sounds like uh, the a name of a city from a Dr. Seuss book, <laughs> but the city was far from cute and friendly. Because Susa was in the heart of empire. Hadessa's story takes place in the center of where power and control were dominating its world. In Susa, power was exercised through a king, namely King Xerxes, and the king expressed his power through the law. See, in Susa, the law was king. There were laws that were made that were irrevocable. That means once they were made, they could not be changed. Well, in Susa, power wasn't just expressed through the law, it was also expressed through opulence and excess. I want you to read this with me. For a full 180 days, the king displays the vast wealth of his couches of gold and silver on pavement made of costly stone. Couches, can you just picture that with me? Couches of gold, like I'm impressed by a gold ring. <laughs> it's just a couch of gold. And the text goes on to talk about things like wine being served in goblets of gold that were custom made. And remember, mass production wasn't a thing back then, so custom made really meant custom made by hand. So at the close of the 180 days, the king threw a seven-day party. And while he was totally wasted, he used his power to put on display one of his most prized possessions, the queen herself. Queen Vashti, this is what the text says. 
On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Another version says this, he wanted all the other men to gaze on her beauty. See, this story is a blatant example of how money and power can really mess with our brains. After 180 days of showcasing his power and his wealth, the king was on some sort of power trip because power is deceiving. Power says, here, have more. It'll help you feel better about yourself. And that voice just never stops speaking. And so King Xerxes had got sucked into this lie that I am what I have except he took it a step further and said, I am whom I have, seeing people as possessions. But in the text it says that Queen Vashti, blood bless Queen Vashti, refused the king's order, and because she refused to put on display in front of all the king's men, she disrupted toxic masculinity. And she was disposed of. Because that's what we do when, we get, when our things don't serve us anymore. We dispose of them. But not only was queen disposed of, check this out. The king's eagle was so hurt that the text says this, that the king sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. So in one swift motion, patriarchy was legalized. So let's pause for a second and consider what the implications for women were during this period of time. What can we learn from Vashti's story? Well, we've learned that a woman's worth in the Persian Empire really depended on three things. One, how beautiful you were. Two, your submission, right? Vashti didn't submit, and that was not appealing. And three, we'll learn later on the story, is your, a woman's sexual prowess. So women in the kingdom probably felt like they only had one of two choices. Either I submit to the status quo and avoid the consequences, or I refuse and I suffer the consequences. Either way, it was a lose-lose situation. Okay, so that's women. Let's think about the implications were for the Jewish people at this time. Remember, the Jewish people were in exile. And when you're in exile, you are a type of immigrant that's not by choice. And also suffer um, having less social privileges. And so in the kingdom where, there were, where the laws were made at the whim of a powerful leader, the Jews were experiencing a dangerous and uncertain quality of life. I know there's a lot of differences between that time and now, but I can't help but wonder the similarities. The similarities of the social political climate of that time to now, especially for our undocumented brothers and sisters. I'm really curious how similar those experiences may have been to live in so much uncertainty. Okay, I've talked about Susa. Let's get back into the story. So after Vashti is disposed of, The king's anger finally subsides, and the king realizes that he misses having a queen. So his advisors tell him to go and search for a new queen by first gathering all the beautiful virgins of the land. And Precious is going to help me read today, um, because there's a lot to read, so she's going to help me read a portion of this scripture. 
Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jahir, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of, the, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Higay. Okay, can I just interrupt the reading for a quick minute? Um, Every time I've heard this story, I've heard this process of recruiting young virgins likened to a beauty contest. But I want you to listen and to read the text carefully because this is not a beauty contest. This was much more than a beauty contest. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. She assigned to her to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard to the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Circe's, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she, and, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given, to, given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, returned to another part of the harem, to the care of Shaaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. And when when the turn came from Esther, the young woman whom Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Circe's in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Hey, so let's recap. Mordecai is the man who adopted and raised Hadassah. I don't have much time to tell you much about Mordecai, but for today, I just need you to remember that he was um, Hadassah's close Jewish relative that raised her. Now let's recap on Hadassah. Hadassah was a woman, orphaned, adopted, beautiful, and an ethnic minority. I just find it so interesting that of all the identifiers were given about her, all of these identifiers were either assigned to her at birth or a result of circumstance. That she didn't choose any of these things. And the text tells us how she, she doesn't tell us, sorry, it doesn't tell us how she felt about these things, but one way to engage with scripture is to imagine, to imagine the text in real life. 
So I want you to imagine being Hadessah. I want you to imagine being a woman, orphaned, adopted, physically attractive in an ethnic minority. Imagine what it might have felt like to carry so many social identifiers that worked against you. But having just one that worked for both for you and against you. Imagine what it might have felt like to be living at the bottom of the social ladder for most of your life for various uncontrollable reasons, but to have one aspect of your life that felt superior. We know from the text that Hadessa was given the support from empire. She was favored by the empire because of her beautiful looks, but not just because of that, but also because of her submission and, if you read carefully, her sexual prowess. I mean, she knew all the rules, all the written and unwritten rules, and she complied. And at this point in the story, I want to point out that Hadessa is often portrayed as the heroine alone. But I want you to know and remind you that Hadessa was an unlikely leader. She was an inconsistent feminist at best, not a moral example from scripture. I want you to sit with that, that she spent a lot of her time, energy, and life being compliant to a patriarchal society. She knew the rules, and she said, okay. And I can't know for sure how she felt, but her compliance did not look and appear too reluctant. And you can argue that maybe she didn't have much of a choice given the options in front of her, but either way, she won the beauty contest of her time. And as a Jewish woman, that means that meant going against her convictions. That meant go, being a person without integrity. And because participating meant losing her virginity to an uncircumcised Gentile, Hadessa violated the Torah and was fully compliant with patriarchy. I recently heard someone share this, that oppressed people aren't better than everybody else. They're just oppressed. Hadessa lived a life with her back against the wall, but she didn't make, it, didn't make her a morally, morally superior person or a better person. It just made her a woman with her back against the wall. Okay, I can't continue telling you the story without introducing one final character. And you thought King Xerxes was a cute? Let me tell you about this man named Haman. Haman was a noble, elevated by all other nobles, and he was also a blatant anti-Semite. And he was as cruel as they get. The text doesn't talk too much about his racial prejudice until it talks about his run-in with Mordecai. Because it becomes clear if you read the story that he has this tender ego that's fueled by racial and religious bigotry. We know this because after his run-in with Mordecai, he successfully initiates a plan for genocide. This is what the text reads. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators to the royal treasury. Clearly at, the point, at this point in the story, things are getting heated. I mean, Hadessa is having sex with an uncircumcised jewel, breaking the rules of the Torah, and the Jewish people are about to get exterminated. So Mordecai is a wreck. 
He publicly expresses mourning by tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and this is how Hadassah responds. Hello, hello. (laughs) When Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuch assigned to attend her, to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told her to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. She, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Hadassah had good reasons to be afraid. Not too long ago, and right before her, the king had disposed of the previous queen for refusing his orders. Remember, Hadassah is a really good rule follower. She might not have had a ton going on for her as an orphan adopted ethnic minority woman before entering the palace gates, but being in a royal position opened up new doors for her. So if I, thought, if I could just imagine her thought life for a minute, it might sound like this. No, no, I have had so little to hold on to. I have experienced so many losses in my life. This one is mine. This is the game I know how to play and win. This, this, don't take it away from me. See, at this point, no one knew that underneath it all, Hadessa was a Jew. She had hidden herself into the fabric of society so well that no one knew her true identity. She was a social chameleon. She was the actress of her time. She knew exactly what people wanted and gave people exactly what they wanted. She was Esther. She was Queen Esther. And all of a sudden, Mordecai disrupts that peace. Because Mordecai wants Hadassah to reveal her Jewish identity and to interrupt Haman's plan for genocide. And there's a part of me that just really empathizes with Hadassah 
because Hadassah has no idea how the story will end. She is caught in the middle of crisis. She is caught in the frightening middle. She cannot see the happy ending from the frightening middle. She can't even picture it. But the invitation here is clear. Hadassah, you can take responsibility for the life God has given you by identifying yourself with your people. Hadessa, you can choose in this moment to use the power you never had until now to make a decision that might, that just might change history. Did you know that the name Esther sounds like the Hebrew word Hester? And that the scholars think there's significance to that because Hester means hidden. And Esther at this point had been hiding. She had been hiding her ethnic identity. She had been hiding who she actually was. For if you, Hadessa, remain silent at this time, right? For if you, Hadessa, remain hidden at this time, if you remain Esther, Hadessa, stop hiding. Hadessa, stop pretending. Make yourself known. Make yourself fully known. Let the world know who you really are. Embrace yourself as Hadassah and embrace yourself as Esther. Embrace the Jewish side of you and embrace the Persian side of you. Because in order to reverse the edict, you need to go as yourself, as both Hadassah and Esther that you may have found the social rest and peace you've been craving all of your life, that you may have arrived on some ways, but I need you to go further. And that we, we need you to go further. Hiding may have worked for you for a long time, but now is the time to stop hiding. Make yourself fully known. Because your vulnerability is the weapon we need to disarm this genocide. You stepping into a place of uncertainty and revealing your whole self and using all of your gift, that, that is exactly what we need. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. And after that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Courage, 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 what a gift. What a gift it is to witness someone fully leaning into uncertainty. I'm curious, friends, how might God be summoning you to be courageous? What might it look like for you to be fully known? To hold the contentious and unpopular parts of yourself and to come to the table with all of those parts. One of my friends in college explained to me with her hand that she was black, but at work she was white. And that depending on the situation, she was black or white. 
Or I have friends who talk to me about being their bicultural or their multiracial experience, who are never Korean enough in the Korean community, but never also Pakistani enough in the Pakistani community. Or I have friends that are white, who talk about their home communities that they have long since left because they no longer associate or subscribe to the theologies and culture that they grew up with. Friends, what might it look like for you to come as your full self? To come to your kingdom assignment as both Hadassah and Esther. You know something I love about this story? Well, first of all, in case you're not familiar with the ending, Hadessa's courageous and unlikely leadership shatters the plan for genocide. And what's so significant about Hadessa's story is that Hadessa changed history by saying yes to courage. But I love the story, not just because of that, but, and, uh, but something else. And I'm afraid that if I told the story and ended there, the story would be incomplete. Because the story of Hadessa is really a story about God. That although the name of God is never mentioned, not even once in the whole book, God and all of God's hiddenness is the most important character in the story. Because the story, Hadassah's story is a story of how against all odds, against all, despite all the poor decision making going on and unlikely leadership, that God's grace breaks through and changes history. That God had made a promise long time ago to the Jewish people that they would be God's people and that God would be their God. That God would never leave or forsake or abandon them. And that this promise to the Jewish people extends to us and is available to us today because of the cross. That Jesus paid the price so that we can also experience that promise. That we too will never be abandoned. That we will never be forsaken. That we will never be forgotten. And so the story of Odessa is a story of God's promise keeping. Of an unseen God being made known through the courageous choices by a beautiful orphaned, adopted, ethnic minority woman. And so if I were to give the book of Esther a title, I actually wouldn't call it Hadessa and Her Unintended Journey. Because while that's a big part and theme of the book, it's not, it doesn't get at the crux of the story. And so if I were to offer up another title, I might call it this. No More Hiding. A story of an unseen God and an unlikely leader making themselves known. I don't think it's a coincidence that the unseen God is most visible in the story when Hadessa chooses to stop hiding. Cece, I need to come up. New community, we've been talking about discipleship for a while now and about following Jesus and inviting others to follow Jesus and to doing it in community. And I want us to remember this story as we think about discipleship because at the heart of the discipleship, at the heart of following Jesus, is coming as we are. Because when we show up as our whole selves, our vulnerable selves, our weak selves, our brokenness intact, it produces life in ways that we could never anticipate. That our yes to God has a power to change lives and to change the world in ways that we could never even imagine. Friend, 
How might God be asking you to stop hiding, to make yourself known? What might it look like for you to be known by others in community? Can I just say it's very possible that that you can, and, and that you might be part of a life group, that you be part of Christian community for months, years, even decades, and still feel like you're not yet known by the people you see week after week. To have no one know what you're actually struggling with. To have people clueless on the gifts and the talents that you hold. Friend, how might God be asking you to step out, to step out of the comfortable palace that's made, that's, that's your cuffs into, the parts of you that, you that offer you control, that offer you security, that offer you certainty and offer you happiness so that you can step into the middle, the frightening middle, the middle that offers you no certainty of what is next. Let's be clear, the risk is great. The risk is so great because you might fail. You might be rejected. You might look like a fool. You might experience a major loss and you might feel disappointed. And I can't guarantee you a happy ending, but we can bank on the promise that the grace of God has the power to break through even in our poor decision-making, even in our life flops, and even in our unlikely leadership. And that rejection, loss, and disappointment will not be the end. It will be part of the journey, maybe part of the journey, but it will not be the end. You know one of my favorite lines from the whole book? It's a phrase that's been on repeat on my mind this past week. It's a part that reads, and who knows? Right? It's when Mordecai was talking and saying, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance of the Jews will rise from another place. And who knows? But that you might have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? Who knows? You know why it's been on my mind this past week? This, I feel like this is a reasonable point in time for me to confess something to you. Is that I had very little in me that wanted to preach today. And it's not because I don't love the word or because I don't believe in women preachers or because I don't believe the message I just preached, but I had a hard time because I just really didn't want it to be me. <laughs> because see, and I promise this is the last time I'll publicly whine about this, <laughs> I really hate public speaking. In fact, I don't really prefer to be in public, period. At the women's retreat a couple weeks ago, Sue asked this question of, if you had a superpower, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? And I thought, without hesitation, invisible. Because I don't really like being in public in general. I don't, I'm happy being invisible. Because little Ruth remembers being forced to go to speech competitions and then going up on stage only to choke up and forget all of her lines. That little Ruth remembers going to all these piano recitals feeling the anxiety, feeling the sweaty palms, feeling the shaky hands, feeling the shaky legs, right? Looked like quite a spectacle. And also botching up at least one or two of those recitals because her anxiety got the best of her. 
And yet, God has been doing something in me that I can't have, I don't have a name for yet. And I don't have clarity about what is happening and where it's leading me. But all I know is that a couple months ago, I felt like God was asking me to stand here today with you, to stand here in the frightening middle. And to say yes, to say that I said yes with a smile would be a total lie. Because I have cried too many times to count up to this moment. And I don't say this for you to pity me. And I don't say this for you to um, give me a hug later. <laughs> but I'm saying this to be transparent with you about my process and what's been frightening to me. I don't know what God is leading me to, but all I know is that I feel scared. And that if it were up to me, I'd be happy with being invisible. But for me, to stop hiding is to lean in. One of my recent Christ sessions with my, my spiritual director, and she said something that really stuck out to me. She said in a very kind voice, Ruth, it sounds like what you're saying is to lead is to be known. Dear friends, what is God inviting you to today? And whatever it is, however clear or ambiguous it may feel, may you be found saying yes. Because who knows? Who knows that perhaps you have come to this church, that perhaps you have come to this city, perhaps you have come to your workplace or school or neighborhood, that perhaps you have come to your family or to a specific relationship, that perhaps you have come to this exact moment, time in history for such a time as this. Will you pray with me? I pray for us, I just want to remind us that at the end, during the, uh, the song, if anyone wants to just come up and to receive prayer, that there will be prayer ministers wanting to pray with you. Because this Christian life that we live, this life we're called to live, we can't do it alone. It's too great. It's too hard. We can't do it, but God can. Sometimes praying with other people reminds us that we are truly not alone. All power for God gracious God it is scary to say yes to you and so I want to ask you for your help today for anyone who is feeling scared who is wanting to be known to be fully known but maybe they're being compelled to reveal a part of themselves that are not have not yet been revealed or explored God would you give them courage give them courage to be known to courage to share their whole selves, not because a happy ending is guaranteed, but because you, God, that you, God, promise your presence that God with us goes before us, beginning to the end. And Lord, I wanna pray for my friends here who are struggling to see you, that they're wanting to see you in the midst of in the most unlikely people, in the most unlikely places, in the darkest of places, maybe even in themselves. Lord, help their unbelief. Give them courage to see you, to see you in all your hiddenness. And finally, Lord, I just wanna pray for anyone here who is struggling to trust in your grace, for anyone who can't picture a different ending apart from the frightening middle, that Lord, you will give them courage to trust 
to give them courage to trust in your grace, a grace that breaks through against all odds. Have your way, O oh God. Have your way that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. If you would, stand on your feet as we sing the song of response, the song of waiting.